to Afraid Not Podcast with Jill McCormick and Robin Wall. We believe that our stories matter and make us who we are. Every other week, we invite guests to join us and share their stories. Even though our stories have nots, we are not afraid. Our stories are afraid. They are not perfect. We believe the truth of our mess makes us stronger. We hope that God uses these stories to encourage and strengthen your faith as you trust in Him. Our theme verse is Colossians 1, 17, which says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, even our frayed knots. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Jill McCormick. And I'm Robin Wall. And this is Afraid Not Podcast. Episode number 72. Today we are welcoming Cammie Casterkey to the show. And she is just a joyful, fun, and energetic person full of life. I loved getting to have this conversation with her today. Cammie and her husband Lester have been married for 24 years and they have three beautiful girls In her story today, she will talk about how those girls came to be because they dealt with some serious infertility issues and ended up doing in vitro. So there's some uh, medical terminology (laughs) thrown around that we have clarity for. But I think you're going to love her story and love her heart. So listen in. Cammie, we're so thankful that you were willing to share your story with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. This is so great. And we're so thrilled that you are just going to talk with us and tell our listeners about how God's been so faithful in all these, the things you're going to share yes. in your story. So would you just start with introducing yourself and let our listeners Get a glimpse into you. What's your okay. What's your life like? What's your deal? What's my deal? Yeah. <laughs> um, my name is Cammie. You just said. I am married um, to Lester, I think, ooh, 24 years in August. Had to do the math real quick. Um, we have three girls. I need a little prayer for that. Um, <laughs> Hope is 19. She'll be a sophomore at OBU. Hannah just turned 18, and she will be a senior at Owasso, and Hadley will be a sophomore at Owasso. She is 16. Um, they keep me busy. I'm, Lots of estrogen in your house. Yes, yes. And that's what we call it the estrogen empire. <laughs> <laughs> and we did get two boy dogs to try I'm to... Is there your animals at least boy dogs? We have one girl dog. She's 11. And then we have two boys. <laughs> and my husband works a lot to avoid the estrogen empire. <laughs> <laughs> and what is your, your job? I am a nurse. Um, currently in hospice. I just, well, I didn't just start that. So, okay, so my first 18 years were labor and delivery, which is kind of part of my story. Then I did five years in Owasso schools, and during that time, I worked hospice on the side, and then I just recently quit the school in May and doing hospice full-time, which the funny thing about that is the two things I said in nursing school that I never do were school nursing and hospice. Is that so? Mm-hmm. So I guess the and Lord that, that it was funny. at that and he yeah. said, here you go. And so here I am. <laughs> Well, yeah. I can vouch for Cammy that because I was at the same building where she was the school nurse for a good probably five years, I think, together. Four, at, yeah, four. four, there four at, Barnes. at Barnes Elementary, I can tell you that she was loved. Everyone, not just not just all the students, all the faculty, all the admin, everyone loves her. So That's a good time. She's pretty great. And it's a challenging job, school nursing, because you're not just in one building. No. 
You're in multiple buildings. You're the only medical person there. You're on your own. It is sink or swim on your own. And lots of driving every day. You drive from site to site and eat lunch in the car, right? Yes. So, you know what, listeners out there, if you have not lately thanked your school nurse, this would be a good day to thank your child's nurse at your building wherever they go to school. So give them a hug or maybe a a, um, high five in the air, virtual. (laughs) We're still hugging. (laughs) We're still hugging. So what do you love about hospice nursing? Oh, some people ask me that because it's a lot of, I could never do that, you know, right. get that vibe. But honestly, it's probably the, one of the most fulfilling jobs I ever had. I know that sounds totally crazy because people are, you know, dying. Um, but you can make, and I think the big misconception about hospice is you you don't get on it until you're right near death. Well, that's absolutely not true. Like, I have one little patient, she's been on for four years now. Oh my. So that is, I had no idea that would ever yes. be the case. So you can increase their quality of life, and a lot of them actually thrive and do a whole lot better. And so it's seeing that, and then you get a lot of those last moments. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have families like, you know, that wouldn't have happened had we not had a hospice. You know, we'll take them, mm-hmm. you know, get them outside or do all these things with them. So you see all that, and you kind of really get to know those families. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really think I liked geriatrics. I was kind of intimidated, but they have the coolest stories. So wow. it's been way more rewarding than I ever thought. Like, I was totally scared of it at first, which is why I said I'd never do it. But um, no, I really enjoy it. I love that. I really enjoy it. And I'd like to hear, just for fun, I'd love to hear, how did you meet Lester? Where's your, <laughs> where's your story begin with him? Oh, that's funny. Um, we met at Oklahoma Baptist University, so that's where I went to school. By the way, I'm also a Bison yes. alum. Go, Bison. Um, I do not know Corrupt, so don't ask me. I do. I can do it right now, but I'll spare you listeners. Go ahead. <laughs> so, I actually transferred in at semester, at J-term, or freshman year. I had been at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Which is January, you take one mm-hmm. class. hmm Yeah. So, I moved there in January of 1995. And, so I was at the University of Missouri, things were not going well, my mom was at home in my room and found this pamphlet from OBU. I guess they came to my, I'm from Missouri. So how that even got in there, I don't remember picking it up. I don't remember them coming to our high school. Cause you know, they have all those college days mm-hmm. when they came in. I remember none of that. All I know is my mom said, how about the school in Oklahoma? They have a nursing program, whatever. So should we drove out here? Divine appointment right yeah, there. But I did not want to come at all. I you didn't. I cried, fought. I was like, there's nothing in Oklahoma except for bison and teepee. Like, I was dying. Bison and teepee? Yes, like, that was on the Indians. Like, that was my whole I'm going to have to ride a horse to class. Yes. Yes. And so we did this tour. She enrolled me. And that was it. So then we had to go back because we had to wait until the J term was over because I didn't start until end of January. And my parents actually went on vacation, and I drove myself out and moved in. It was like five that hours. That must have been house. rough. It was, but looking back, I it's totally what I needed. Hmm. And Did you know one person? Not a soul. Not a soul. I didn't know my roommate. I didn't know anybody. You know, at that point, all the little groups had kind of formed mm-hmm. for a semester because they all went to Welcome Week together, and they had their friends, and I knew nobody. So I was just put in this random room with this girl. Um, it worked out okay. And he was kind of in the same, fr- and I, I'm not an extrovert. I'm not. I know I kind of seem people like look at me crazy when I say that, but I'm really not. Um, it's kind of like forced. <laughs> and I'm an extrovert within my group. So that really made me, I had to. 
Like I had to go mm-hmm. out and like meet people or mm-hmm. I was just going to like sit in my room and I don't know, wither away. So he kind of was in our friend group of friends that we kind of got to know. So the semester went on, we all became friends and I had this great group. And then the next sophomore year, I went back home for the summer, came back our sophomore year and I was living with this girl who I ended up going to nursing school with and lived with all the, the rest of three years. And um, I think he had a girlfriend at that time. But the fun, the story we always say is I dated both of his roommates first. Oh, that's yeah. very funny. Yeah, and the, they both transferred out. One went to OU, one went to Baylor. So I was like, oh, well, he's left. So here we go. So <laughs> <laughs> their time's a charm. Yes. <laughs> so we started dating oh in November of that year, our sophomore year, and got engaged in July and then married the next August. Oh, what a sweet story. I've got to so, ask, did... His two former roommates who went off to mm-hmm. Baylor and OU, did they come to your wedding? One was in the wedding. <laughs> and yes, the other one came. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> they, they, did. So great. they did. So it's whatever. It is what it is. <laughs> well, Lester got the queen, so that's yeah. good. <laughs> yes. Was he pining for you the whole time, waiting for his turn? I don't think so. He had girl. He had, he had other girlfriends. So it was just, I mean, we were friends. Like, we were just really good friends. And that's what people ask that when we started dating. We really couldn't even tell you when our first date was because we all we just always just hung out. Mm-hmm. So then it just kind of, that's just what it was. It's so great to, I mean, sometimes the Lord brings something that's out of the blue. But it's really beautiful when you can begin dating a really good friend. And yeah. that sounds like that was just a really neat yeah. flow of how your relationship went. So I like that. That's yep. neat. And I am excited to hear you share about your frayed knot. Yes. We, you um, listeners, I wish you could see the pictures that she already showed us, but um, I know you can't see the pictures, but we are going to hear um, a story. on of, social media, though. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. Good. But we're, this story is uh, a tender mm-hmm. one that many of you may have been in the same shoes that Cammie is going to describe, and we just want you to... Just listen with a tender heart to this story. So tell us about your your afraid knot. Okay, so my afraid knot is my infertility. And I don't think people realize, because I look at our family and my girls are so closely together, I think people just assume it was super easy, boom, boom, boom. And it's like, why'd you have your kids so close? I'm like, let me tell you. Um, But it so was not that. So I always knew, like my mom had trouble getting pregnant. I'm an only child. So she had trouble getting pregnant, and so and I had several doctors along the way tell me um, that I probably never would. Like when you were growing up, they yeah, told you. I went and saw an OBGYN in Shawnee when wow. I was in college, and wow. he told me that she was like, I don't know if you'll ever really get pregnant. Well, you'll have to just see. But the flip side of that is, twenty years ago, infertility wasn't really talked about. It wasn't studied. Right. No one knew enough about it. It was just if you couldn't get pregnant, you couldn't get pregnant, and you didn't talk about it. Like, so I look now and, you know, there's things all over social media and there's all these like books and references and help and there's, there, we had nothing. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't have forums to talk to, you know, or anything. So you're just kind of on your own. Was so, this a private thing for you? Did you share it with anyone? Not really. Because, you, and I think another part of that is you're, it's, it's a really kind of dark place to be because you're kind of alone. And then you go through the like anger, like, why is your body failing you? Um, everybody else does it so naturally, normally, like what's wrong, you know? And so it's not something, and then you don't want to be a burden to everybody. So you kind of just keep it to yourself. Mm. So what drew, is that what drew you to labor and delivery? Kind of. 
But I always had a thing for, I always knew I wanted to do labor and delivery. Like something about women's health was just mm-hmm. fascinating to me. And I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie. So it was labor and delivery or the ER. And the ER, I didn't know if I could handle kids. Like getting right. hurt, drawn, like trauma, stuff like that. So, and that was another thing. They're like, no one ever hires new grads into labor and delivery. Well, that was my first job. So and it was fantastic. And I did 18 years there and that was, that was good. It was good. But yeah, kind of. So... But I didn't realize, though, at that point that I was going to go through all the infertility and how hard that was going to be to work in labor. Oh, right. Because mm. that right. was a whole other part of that. So we got married in 1997. Um, we moved to Tulsa because it was between... I'm from Missouri. He's from Shawnee. It's kind of halfway between. Um, seemed like a good place to work. So I was working at St. John Labor and Delivery, which the good part about that is I was really... I saw my OBGYN every day. Because I worked with her. Oh, my goodness. So I could harass her daily about my <laughs> issues. And I think she got sick of me. So I ended up having to have, like, ACL surgery. I tore my ACL playing basketball in high school four years previous to that and never fixed it because nursing school, you can't miss class. So I just dealt with it. So had to get that fixed and do all these things. So I had to write these dates. Now, I actually kept a journal through all this, which... That's very smart. Well, I forgot I had it, but we just redid our room, I kid you not, two weeks ago after we scheduled this, and I found it in, like, our little bedside table. And so I had, and it has, like, all the dates in it. A little smile from the Lord right there. Yes, I was like, thank you, Jesus. Um, So we actually started trying, like, December of 1999. Um, My issue was, and I wasn't diagnosed until that following February with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Which is actually very, very common. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not have any of the other symptoms of that besides I just didn't ovulate. So it was really hard for people to figure out how to diagnose me because my labs were all normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't overweight. I didn't have a lot of those women have like the excess like hair growth or they lose their hair on the head. Um, and they just don't ovulate. I didn't have any of those. I just Dark didn't circles, nothing. Yeah, I had nothing. And my whole time in high school and on, when I wasn't having normal cycles, every doctor I went to just blamed it on, well, you're athletic. You don't have enough body fat. Once you stop playing sports, it'll all come back. You'll be fine. Okay, but, but it didn't. So I was like, in my mind, I was like, I know something's wrong. Like something's just not right. Did you share all this with Lester way before? Yes. So it was something he at least helped you through. At least you weren't just yes. trying to keep it a secret from him. I'm glad. And you I'm pretty sure at that point it just went right over his head. <laughs> he had no idea what he was about to get into. <laughs> but um, so yeah, so he knew. So we started um, December of 1999. Clomid. That was the first medication that they put me on, and that was just it's a basic drug made to make people ovulate. I did nothing on it. Like, no ovulation, no nothing, nothing, nothing. So, my and they did lab work at that time. Um, my OBGYN that I saw, and I still see this day, her name's uh, Dr. Gray. She's fabulous. Her husband is actually in her practice with her, and he had done a stint at Tulsa Infertility Clinic. So, he was actually helping kind of do all my basic, like, lab work and stuff like that. Because the part about working at St. John, I was at a Catholic hospital and Catholic insurance. They don't pay for any infertility. They don't pay for any birth control. I did not know that. I didn't either. So they, they just won't. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it's a religious pro I knew what I was working for. So, you know, so he was trying to mm-hmm. rig it and do as much as they could 
and code it differently and not label it infertility so that stuff would be covered. It was a process. So February, yeah, February of 2000, they diagnosed me with the polycystic ovarian syndrome and that was by an ultrasound and my ovaries just looked like they just had like almost like pearls like all the way around just full of cyst. So you couldn't ever ovulate because they just, they didn't function. So at that time, 20 some years ago, they had just figured out that women with type 2 diabetes, because you're also prone to that when you have PCOS, they're putting them on like glucophage, metformin, all your type 2 diabetic drugs, and all of a sudden they were ovulating and getting pregnant. So they put that correlation together that the PCOS is actually caused by insulin resistance and not like your progesterone or estrogen. So your Can you say that a little bit more? Right, I know. It's like <laughs> hang, you, hang with us, listeners. Okay, so the medicine could actually help your body, yes. even if you weren't diabetic. Yes. Okay. So they put me on it. It did nothing to my blood sugar because it has nothing to do with your blood sugar. It's just you're resistant to insulin, which is a whole different thing. So once your insulin was too high, that in turn caused all your other female hormone hormones not to work. So if they could bring your insulin down to normal level, then you would start ovulating. So I went on glucophage, which made me sicker than a dog. Oh, no. Um, it puts you on an automatic low-carb diet. Like, I couldn't even look at bread. It was terrible because it puts you like you have a threshold, and if you eat over that threshold of carbs, your body just gets rid of it. Mm. So I think I lost probably like 35 pounds. Oh, my goodness. Um, and what's this medicine? I'm just kidding. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want it. <laughs> it was terrible. Um so we did that, and it started that in February of 2000. I did just that glucophage by itself for like three months, and then we added the clomid back on to see if then I would ovulate and respond to that, which I did finally ovulate, but I still didn't get pregnant. So I finally just told Dr. Gray we had a talk. She's like, I think you probably just need to go to the Tulsa Infertility Clinic. I'm like, okay, whatever. And in my mind, I'm like, we can't pay for this, but we're going to figure that out. So, September, I have a little note, dates from my journal. September 18th of 2000, we went over there and met with Dr. Pro. I think he's still over there, actually. Um, nicest man you'll ever meet, talked way over my head. Um, he went through all, you know, the stuff with us and what I had in my labs, and he basically said, in vitro is going to be your best option because if we, <clears throat> like, hyper-stimulate, like, just did stimulation drugs and then like an insemination he said you're going to end up like with six kids at one time and that was about that time that one family had like those seven babies at one time and it was all over the news yes john and uh, kate plus eight no, no it was, was it optimum yes that mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. he said you're going to end up like her I'm like i'm not doing that so that was the plan so that was september and so they didn't schedule me to do the ivf until the next february because at that time, they were only doing cycles every three months. So, and it takes, I had no idea. It's a whole big process to get ready for, um, to do that cycle. So, in the meantime of all that, so I had from September to February, you have to have a trial transfer where they act like they're transferring embryos and make sure they can get up through your cervix and into your uterus and everything's fine. That was horribly painful if you've never had kids. Um, all kinds of lab work. You have to do marital counseling. Um, you have to meet with the financial people and figure out how you're going to pay for it. At that time, it was about thirteen to fifteen thousand dollars. 
I think now it's about 24 because I have a friend going through it. Wow. And that's so just about one time. Yeah. And that's, you, and you don't even know if you'll have embryos, if they'll take, I mean, you're taking this big gamble right. with your $15,000. So hmm. in between somewhere around like December, my husband, he had been traveling and he's an accountant. He was really over home. He had thought about looking for a new job. So some really good friends of ours, Danielle and Ellen Robbins, Mm-hmm. She's why I'm here. Um, they're accountants too. And so they had somehow, he kind of talked to them about a new job. So he ends up getting a job with their company probably about January. We go look at all their benefits, all that stuff, and their insurance covers in vitro. Wow. wow. So we ended up paying, I actually wrote it down because I had it in my thing, um, $1,600 was the total cost, and then we paid $400 for the drugs. So, Instead of $15,000. Yes. Wow. That's, my goodness. Yes. So that was another big, huge godsend. So Absolutely. We did all that kind of stuff, and then it came time... Um, first of February so you have to start your medications and you take them like every day and they're all shots so you get this giant box that's delivered from some pharmacy in like Dallas I think um I don't like to ask for help because I'm a nurse so I gave myself my own shots <laughs> every day and so you start those and then your life just revolves around this cycle and it's so timed out so it can be like you have to take this shot at like 6, 12 a.m. and then 7, 14 p.m. And then you have to be at the lab at this certain time for lab work. I mean, so I was forever leaving work. At that time, the fertility clinic was at Hillcrest, and I worked at St. John. And luckily, they were very supportive. I knew what I was doing um, and would let me, like, run down there and then come back. And so all that stuff. Um, so that was in February. So you get to the certain part where you're taking your stimulation drugs and you have to have your estrogen checked so that estrogen number has to be a certain amount because it shows like how many eggs you're you're producing and if it's high enough like if they're going to be mature or not mature so the first number was supposed to be 80 or below mine was 353 and so dr pro was like were you crushed no and that's the thing i you know, I had from, like, September to February to kind of just take it all in. Mm-hmm. And so I threw myself into all the women of the Bible. So, like, Sarah and Hannah and I, we all became besties. <laughs> and so, you know, and I sat there and I read their stories. And I think it's Francine Rivers, and she had this whole series of the, the Lineage of Grace yeah, and she so has she, several series of different things, and they were all really good. Well, and those were all individually about different women of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And she, it's almost written like a historical nonfiction, so it made it way easier for me to read and like actually comprehend than just the Bible story itself. Right. And so I had thrown myself in those stories. So I was like, okay, Sarah waited for 90 years. Um, you know, Hannah had to do what she had to do. Um, Esther and Ruth were other big ones that kind of just stuck with me. And I was like, you know, I've got this because they had that faith. And and by the time I got to February, like, I really had zero anxiety. Wow. And it was the coolest. And I can still remember all those feelings. It was so bizarre. But so he told me that. He's like, your number's too high. And he said, I really should cancel your cycle. Because what happens if you have too many eggs and they go to try to retrieve the eggs Every time you ovulate on a normal cycle, like, you produce fluid from that one 
egg, like an ovulation. So if you have multiple ones that all produce fluid when you take them out, then that fluid builds up in your body. So then you have women who have gone to the hospital to have to have fluid drained off their lungs, off their abdomen, all that just from having too many eggs from IVF. Hmm. So that was kind of where we were at. So he's like, let's just decrease your medicine, like in half, take half the dose, come back in a few days, and we'll recheck. I was like, okay. So we did that. I went back, and it had to be under 3,500. Mine was 3,495. Oh, gosh. Wow. <laughs> he was like, all right, Cammie. I'm like, okay, we're good. So <laughs> wow. we went on, and so it got to the day of the retrieval, um, which they knocked me out for that. Like, that's the one thing they put you to sleep for. So I always tell her, like, my husband wasn't even in the room. It's just such a weird place to be. Um, so clinical. So clinical. And you're making a baby, but no yeah. one you're, no one you know. <laughs> it, was just, <laughs> it was just so surreal. So they put you to sleep. So we went and did that. I woke up in the recovery room. Lester was beside me. And Dr. Pro came in. He's like, so you had 27 eggs. Oh, my goodness. And he's like, that might be the most he'd ever had. Um, wow. And as of that time, 19 of them had fertilized. I was like, we're going to be the duggers. So, <laughs> um, so I was like, okay. So what they do then is they take those 19 that had fertilized and they grow them for five days is their goal. Because if they can get to five days, then that is the same amount of days if you were naturally to get pregnant. That's the fifth day is when the embryo implants into the uterus. So if they can grow them out to five days in a Petri dish and then just implant them the same mm-hmm. day, they have a better chance of making it. And he said, you know, you're young enough, you have enough, we can take that risk. Because a lot of times they'll put in battle transfer them back at three days if they don't look like they're going to make it. So I went home and I rested and I was so super sore and so bloated from, I mean, I looked like I was four months pregnant. Um, That's kind of like a side effect from what you went through. All the fluid all that just really, I mean, it was miserable. Wow. And then they call you every day and they give you a grade of your embryos. So you have like so many grade A, so many, and they're all like this intricate like number system. So we got to day five. He told me to come in for the transfer. And we ended up with 10. So we had 10 that made it to day five. So he put two in, and then we froze the eight. So out of those two, and, you know, I'd worked labor and delivery enough to know, like, because we had seen people who put two in, they ended up with triplets because one splits. Or we had, they put in one, that one splits, you end up with identical twins. So we're like, he was like, let's just do the two because they were, they were the fresh ones, supposed to be doing better. And we'll see what happens. Like, okay. So I went in for that transfer that day, and I went to the little bathroom to change. And I was almost like, I don't want to say giddy, but I was there was such a peace. And, I mean, no part of me was nervous, like, at all. It was, And I know I should have probably been. Wow. But at that point, I had gotten to, and it took, I mean, this was like a two-and-a-half-year process to get to this point. It didn't, like, just happen. Um, that whatever happened was okay. So even if I didn't get pregnant, then that was okay. And if I did, obviously that was okay. But to get to that point where you finally realize that God's plan is okay, mm-hmm. whether you see it or mm-hmm. not, it's a great place to be. It's just mm-hmm. it's really hard to get there. And 
that wasn't always how I was. I was very like calculated. This is how I'm going to do things. This is what's going to happen. This is my plan. If you got off my plan, it just kind of threw me for a loop. No more. <laughs> so it was such a piece. So I went in for the transfer. I was awake for that one. And um, they kind of use this little tube and just transfer them in there. And then they give the tube to the embryologist. And he goes and looks to make sure the embryos are gone. And you go and lay there for an hour. Then you go home. And you start on progesterone shots, which I started on. And then 10 days later, you go in for lab work and they call you if you're pregnant or not. So my number, so they called me and I didn't take, everyone asked, did you like, you know, take a pregnancy test at home? Like that one I did not. Um, Cause I don't think I wanted to know yet, but I felt pretty gross. I'm like, if I'm not pregnant, something's wrong. <laughs> and so they called me, I was pregnant. My number was really high. They were concerned there was twins, but there was not. So it was just hope. Um, her name is from Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, mm. because that's one of those other verses that I just kind of repeated over and over. Because no matter what had happened, my future was okay. Yeah. So that's where she came from. Um, and then Hannah. So we saw the same insurance. And so what they told us back then, your frozen embryos only had a five percent chance of making it. So that was our theory was hope turns one, we'll start the next cycle, we'll go through these eight embryos, and then we'll have to do the whole thing again. They're liars. <laughs> because, <laughs> because Hannah and Hope are 19 months apart. Um, they put three embryos in with her. They, they thawed out three. They all survived the thaw. And that's another thing. Like We had to put our embryos in our will. Because um, we still have them in the freezer. And we didn't think about the ethical stuff of IVF before wow. we went through it. We were just focused on, oh, we want a baby. But then you're stuck with... Yeah, this is what we were talking about when I was like, I had never really mm-hmm. considered the whole ethical side of it. Like, you have these embryos in a freezer that are babies, yes. possibly. And you know how many people I had tell me, it's really just a ball of cells. I don't know what your problem is. Well, it's really not because it's I had my other little ball of cells was right over here and she's alive. So no one thinks about that. So you have to pay freezer storage. It's so crazy looking You're back saying at the it. word freezer yeah. and you're talking about your baby. Yeah. And it's just, I, I, it must have felt a surreal sense of there's a baby in the freezer, yeah. eight babies. There's eight of them. So, and you literally had to consider in your will mm-hmm. what to do. Mm-hmm. This is really something to think about. Wow. Yeah, because after had we had hope, hope, we were like, oh, we should probably get a will. Because we were, like, going on vacation or something. And then we were talking to the, it was through, like, the Baptist, whoever does those things. The Baptist Foundation. Yes. Right. It's actually pretty cool because they'll help people. Yes. And it's a great way for them. Listeners, you can set up a will that way. Yeah. Just to so get we it. Did. And yeah. our embryos were in there. They were going to my brother-in-law. But you don't, you think about that because then you have the option. And they give you, like, we you paid, at that time, I think it was $600 a year to keep them frozen, but they always give you the option, like they, they would discard them for you, they just get rid of them, or you can adopt them out, but the thought of someone else raising my kids comes kind of weird to me. And, wow. And I didn't know if I wanted to like actually run into them, like you kind of look like somebody <laughs> else I know. Just like me. Yeah, so. It, wow, yeah, and, and it's a lot think, to think about. Yeah, I don't think people think about the ethical I mean, we didn't, because you're so focused on just wanting to have a baby. So you don't think about what are you going to... And I don't think we expected to have eight in the freezer mm-hmm. at all. So 
So in Hannah, they thought out three. We had to pay a $30 copay. Once again, thank you, Jesus. That's all we paid. And it's not near the process of the first one because I didn't have to you know, make any more you know, eggs or anything like that. So Oh, right, right. You just you know kind of do progesterone and they put them back in. So got pregnant with her, had the one. And then we had these five left. <laughs> and we're like, oh. So we waited. Let's see. Hope turned four in October, and we had Hadley in January, and Hannah's in between them. So it was just boom, boom, boom. But we really were like, and they told us the same thing. Well, you know, these have been in the freezer for almost three years. They're not probably going to do real well. I was like, okay. I said, but I still want to try because I can't, I can't just get rid of them, and I don't want to adopt them out. That might be selfish to some people because I know there's people who would adopt embryos, but that was just a personal thing for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went ahead, and actually we started to try that like the May or February cycle. It actually got canceled because my lining of my uterus wouldn't ever get thick enough. So we canceled that cycle. He's like, let's just try again like the next month. So had those born in January. They got pregnant in August, so we had to wait till August. My lining still wasn't very good at all. He's like, let's just, it's okay. He's like, kind of, you know, whatever, we'll try it and see. So I got there that day, and they thought out all five of them. I was like, ooh. <laughs> so, because um, I had a three and a one and a half year old at home. So one didn't survive the thaw. He said one didn't look very well, but he would go ahead and put it, transfer it back in because he knew how I felt about it. And the other three looked okay. I can remember just laying on that table going, okay, God, this is kind of funny and cute, but I, like multiples would have been fun the first time. Yeah. But I was like, <laughs> You're I, thinking, what if I have quadruplets? Yeah, and I have a three and a half, <sighs> one year old at home. So he put them back in, and well, I'm being honest, like I didn't really take my drugs probably like I should have, like the progesterone. And so I started like taking pregnancy tests at home early because by that time I knew, and those pregnancy tests would catch a positive earlier. So I got over work one day. I was like, okay, it's just like a day before. I'm going to go ahead and try. So it was negative. So it's like, sweet, I'm done. Quit all my drugs. Like, I quit them oh. all. And I was like, okay, we're done. We have two girls. Life is good. Thank you, Jesus. And then like three days went by. I was like, oh. And I, I think the next day was my scheduled test. I was like, well, I'll just take this because I have one more left. So I took it, got in the shower. I was getting out for work. And lo and behold, it was positive. I was like, oh here we go. So <laughs> Hadley will also tell you that I didn't want her because I stopped my medication. I'm like, no, Hadley, that's not. Of course I wanted you, Hadley. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we only had her. And so her middle name, well, Hannah obviously was named after Hannah. And then her middle name is Grace. So um, just because it is. So that is kind of it. But, you know, through all that, like, back to working labor and delivery, like, mm-hmm. I loved it, but I didn't realize how hard that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of women don't want their babies, to be honest. Um, a lot of 17, 18-year-olds having their third, you could care less. And you go through, you know, why? Like, they don't even, like, these babies don't stand a chance. And then here I am, you know, can't have them. Um, I had a fantastic Sunday school class. Also, the most fertile Sunday school class. Mm. So it was like, and that was just that age. I mean, you know, but right. So every Sunday they'd bring breakfast, and it would be announced a new pregnancy. Um, so it was a very, and I'm, I struggled a lot with because it took me a lot to get to the point where I can't be bitter because they're pregnant. Like it wasn't fair to them. 
And so as much as I could have avoided every baby shower or anything like that, I made myself go. Mm-hmm. And I generally was happy for them. And they all knew. And I never wanted them to feel like they had to, you know, walk around Tip-toe me. around. Yes. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side of that, they were probably my biggest priority. Kathy Trost was fantastic. Suzanne Baumhoff, who's not here anymore. Um, Danielle Robbins, and we're still good friends to this day. Wendy D. Wall, she moved to Kansas. But, like, I could not have asked for better people to have been surrounded by. Mm-hmm. So they, like, all walked through that whole journey with me. Mm-hmm. How was um, this for you and Lester during this time? How was Lester? How did he handle all this? You know, he is the most laid-back human on the planet. Um probably have to be to be married to me (laughs) so he really just kind of did what he was told and what you know he didn't ask a whole lot of questions and like I said Dr. Pro I love him he is still working at the fertility clinic but he's so brilliantly smart like he talks so over your head and it went over my head and I kind of knew Sure. A little bit. So a lot of that was, and we would leave, he'd be like, what do you say? I'm like, I have no clue. I said, we're just going to do what he says to do. So it was a lot of faith based on that too. So you really can't be, and I was like one of those people, like I need to know step A to B through C and IVF takes that all away. Like it is, I mean, and I'm sure you could probably stay that way, but I think you would probably drive yourself mad. Mm-hmm. Because it's just, and you're so emotional anyways, because they start pumping you full well, of all Well, that's a lot of hormones. Yeah. Like, you're a basket yeah. case. Wow. So, but it, I mean, it it worked out, and I, I don't regret that I had to go through that. Like, that, I mean, it changed probably my entire personality. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get too worked up if things kind of don't go how they're supposed mm-hmm. to anymore. I'm kind of like, I yeah. don't have control of that. I never have. Mm-hmm. So, and what miracles that yeah. you have three precious daughters. Yes. They are well, so you, wonderful. You know, when I was pregnant with Hadley, I go see my OB-GYN, and I was like, do you think she's okay because she was frozen for three? Because people didn't have frozen embryos back then. Like, like they just didn't. And she was always like, well, I guess we'll find out in a few months. I'm like, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but Like, could they tell from the ultrasounds and stuff? Everything looked okay, yeah. yeah. But it just wasn't anything. People getting pregnant on frozen embryos was not common. Now I think that's all they do because I have friends going through it. And then now they actually, they found they prefer to freeze them and not transfer fresh ones. So they've changed the whole thing. But 20 years ago, like that wasn't common. And to get pregnant twice, I mean, I got pregnant all three times the first time, which my doctor was like, you're the most fertile and fertile patient I have. I'm like, I know. <laughs> um, but that just wasn't common. And you didn't, like I said, there wasn't anyone really you could talk to. It's not talked about. Um, I think one in eight women struggle with infertility. Mm. Wow. And like one in four have a pregnancy loss, and you just don't talk about it. Mm. And I think you feel kind of inadequate. And I think, you know, that's back to my... I've heard people say that. I do. That have struggled with that, that somehow it makes you feel less womanly or Mm -hmm. something, and it has nothing to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the parts of the story of Hannah from the Bible that really connected with you and ministered to you and you kind of clung on to? I mean, obviously, such a special story if you named your daughter Hannah. Yes. Well, I think the more I read about her, she struggled with her Mm self-worth. I mean, she had someone else having her babies, so... And I think for, you know, for a while that worked out okay. But 
and she, and she really struggled with that. And it was just holding on to that, that faith of somehow, you know, it's going to happen. And, and then still kind of being like, oh, it did happen. And then, you know, this kind of the same with Sarah. And her, my thing with her was, and I think I even wrote it down, is that she learned to wait and not trust or push God's timetable. And that, to me, was a big thing because I had always, you know, we were going to get married this year. We were going to have a baby this year and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I wanted to do my own timetable. And both of them really had to learn it's not about me and just to trust his timetable. And it's it's perfect and this plan is perfect and to go with that. Mm-hmm. And that's not an easy place to get to. No. At all. It's not. So. How did this affect your nursing well, <laughs> it was rough for a while. I think in there, I um, I have a real big passion for teenagers. I don't know why. I'm very drawn to them. And so for a long time, and I still, to the day I quit that job, um, I took care of every teenage mom that walked in that building. And... Um, and then it became, so I really, and I still kind of did, but then I also had a heart for all our IVF people. Sure. And you would see them, and then that would put my story kind of in perspective as for as terrible as it seemed for me at that time, it could have been so much worse. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had moms up there with, you know, the twins and the triplets, and statistics kind of show you that people who get pregnant with multiples via infertility treatments don't do as well. Your body's not made to do that. Um People who naturally get, because it runs in their family, they do fantastic. Because it runs, like, it's a genetic thing. So their bodies, their bodies are made capable. to do that. Yeah. And so our, and our IVF mamas who came through there with multiples, they didn't always do so well. And that was hard. Mm. So they're delivering, like, you know, 28, 29-week babies. Oh, with right. With all kinds of problems. Because their gotcha. bodies just didn't do that. But, hmm. um. But I think just being a mom in general made that job better because I was like, mm-hmm. oh, epidural. Yes, I know why you need that now. Um, so. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes, yes. Um, I think it made me way more compassionate, though. And we don't know everybody's story. And right. I think And I think that put in perspective for me is, you know, I saw all these people having all these babies, but then I get to know some of them, and they really have struggled for a while. Like, I just assumed, kind of, I think people assume that we naturally had three kids close together very easily. We did not. We did not. With them being so close in age, how close are they to each other? They're actually really close. Um, they have a weird dynamic, though. Hannah and Hadley are probably closer. Hope is home for the summer, and she made the comment that they're sisters. No, they're friends, and I'm just the sister. I'm like, hmm. well, because you're trying to parent them because you're the oldest. Um, they rarely fight. Like, I don't really remember them ever fighting. Um, even now, and if they do, it's like they bicker for 10 seconds and they're done. So, um, but they all have very different personalities. Like, they're not the same at all. How did you tell them this amazing story? How old did you wait, you know, how long did you wait to tell them? Or About sixth grade biology class. Oh, huh. <laughs> oh, huh. <laughs> because they start talking about, they learn that. And I think it was with Hope. And I think we had always kind of made comments, but when she started, when they started learning that and kind of the process of it, I was like, okay, well, that's really not how you guys were made. So they kind of, we kind of just kind of eased them into it. 
And then once they could fully understand it, they they get it. Um, I don't know if they understand like the magnitude of it. So you know, Hope is older, so she gets it now. I think Hadley is just tired of the frozen comments. And I've told them like you guys can't say that stuff in public. But Hope will repeatedly throw out, "You two were frozen. I wasn't." Oh goodness. Um, <laughs> I just whatever. <laughs> but. I don't know how much they really know yet. You know, they're still teenagers, so I think that will... I th- and I, I mean, they'll ask questions. I'll answer whatever questions they, they ask. And they've seen their pictures, and they think they're kind of funny. And um, how they'll make comments that she took out all the boy embryos that were left in the freezer. I mean, <laughs> so there's no boys to be found. But I think they know what they can, what they can comprehend. Right. But... They're understanding it, but they know it wasn't, like, normal. But it's really, they are very special sisters because mm-hmm. they were taken out of your body the very same day. Yeah, so they've had that So discussion. it's like are they're triplets. triplets. Yeah. yeah. And it's an interesting reality that... Yeah. Well, that's what Hadley can't wrap her mind around. She's like, okay, so I was made in 2001, but I was born basically five years later, 2006. Fascinating. It is. Wow. It is. And I think you can't really sit and think about it. It kind of makes it more yeah, crazy. But. So what do you say to women when they're struggling with infertility? Mm. It's, oh, not to even try to sugarcoat it because I think I spent a lot of time pretending to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to like burden people with my issue or and like I said at that time you know we were all pregnant or they were all pregnant every one of them um and I took care of most of them labor and delivery so um but it was a lot of that it was it's more don't be ashamed to talk about to talk about it um I think society and I think though it is getting better I think more women are speaking about it I think there's more information about it out there um, I think the more people go through it, and now that we have Facebook, people are airing their issues. And I've seen, and I've been on Facebook because I kind of trolled through some pages. And there's a button, there's a Facebook page. It's called Waiting for Baby Bird, and that's all it is. And there are hundreds of thousands of women on there, and that's all they talk about. And you can just, then they're heartbreaking stories. It's like I've tried IVF like nine times, and it's failed. And you know, and I had people ask me, you know, why don't you just adopt? Like, that's, like, the worst question to ever ask anybody going through in vitro. Or if you'll just relax, it'll happen. I had that one a lot, too. And that's not it. No. No. And I think God gives you this, like, maternal, like, you want to be pregnant. You know, you want to go through all the pregnancy and all that stuff. So to just tell somebody to just forget about it and adopt. Like, I know people mean well. Um... But I think adoption is a calling. Yeah. And having your own is a calling. Yeah. I mean, that's, God puts that in each of us how he wants yeah. our, what direction he wants us to go with it. Yes. So. And so it was, you know, it's just stuff like that. And I know people, like I said, they meant well, but mm-hmm. no one really knows what to say to people. It's like, do you bring it up? Do you not bring it up? Um, but it's really kind of just what that person's willing to share. So, and I had a few people that I would, you know, probably talk to you every day and so they knew so I had a couple people that I just kind of sounded off of mm-hmm. and that was fine but I really tried not to just bring everybody down with me <laughs> so 
And I had people tell me years later, we thought you did so good. I'm like, well, because that was kind of my thing. Like, I just didn't want people to wallow in my misery. But I would go to work, and then I'd most likely go home and cry. And that was just kind of my pattern. <sighs> but but that got better because, I had, like I said, I had those two years, and that's probably about when I just threw myself into all the good Bible studies and stories. And by the time I got to that place in February of 2001... I had complete peace over that, no matter what had happened. Hmm. So That's something only God could do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I can still remember, because it was crazy, I don't remember a whole lot about that, and I probably wouldn't remember all these numbers and dates had I not found that journal, but I can vividly remember that feeling mm-hmm. in that bathroom of that room changing into my gum. Hmm. But I can't remember anything else. <laughs> I remember that. But because that was a specific God moment. Yes. In- encounter that yes. you were having. Yeah. Yes. So. so. Do you have any resources or anything you'd recommend? See, that's the thing. And that's why I was trying to think. I don't because I didn't have any. Sure. Like, you know, I yeah. didn't have. So maybe the stories in the Bible. Yeah. you had. You had those women and yep. your friends. Yep. And you really have to kind of identify and try to put yourself in their spot and then somehow pray a lot to get that kind of faith. Because, <laughs> I mean, I think we read those stories and, like, I knew those stories. I'd heard those stories all my life. But until I actually really, like, threw myself in there, like, I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Like, I just didn't. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, at that before that, it was just another Bible story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that made it um, way more personal. And it's pretty kind of the Lord that... The Bible includes stories of women who wanted children. Yes. Because so many, like you said, one in four, mm-hmm. struggle with, they they have a failed pregnancy or they're, they have trouble getting pregnant. Or You think about all through the Bible, there are many, many times from like the, the Shunammite woman that Elijah mm-hmm. was kind yeah. to and mm-hmm. he promised her she would have a son. And, of course, Hannah that you've mentioned, yep. and Sarah, and Genesis, and all the way through the Bible. And, you know, the, the mother of John the Baptist. Yes. Mm-hmm. There are so many stories, and you can just know there is such a special reason that the Word of God has every single scripture in it. So yes. I think one of the beautiful reasons he included those is to be a comfort to those of us who are going through that. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, I can't imagine, <clears throat> excuse me going through that and not knowing Jesus, like, or really most of life. But, you know, something that big and just stressful and all-consuming and not having anything to fall back on. Because I would have been a mess. (laughs) I just would have. Especially with my job and... Yeah, that would have been... All my pregnant friends. Mm-hmm. Like, you were as surrounded as you as could be, be yes, with babies. Right in the middle of it, 20... Like, I couldn't escape it. I mean, every single day of your work, you were mm-hmm. helping deliver mm-hmm. babies and holding them and... And mostly teenage babies. So I had a bunch... And, and I do. I still love teenagers to this day, and I did take care of most of them because they had some rough stories, but they... Mm-hmm. Teenagers fascinate me. <laughs> they're just so don't, like they're fascinating and intriguing all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love pregnant teenage moms, and so that's who I wanted to take care of. But that's who hurt me the most, right? Because they didn't want those babies. Mm-hmm. Very rarely, like I would have some that never stopped looking at the TV during delivery. 
or, you know, they don't know who, you know, the father. I mean, it was just the most everyday random. They just don't. I had an 18-year-old. She's having her third. I mean, they just don't care. And so, but, and I chose to do that because that's what I liked, but that was also the hardest thing I could have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, wow. but it was good. It was good. I love your story so Thank much. You. I love that God blessed you with three daughters. I love that he brought you through and gave you so much peace. Yes. Oh, man. It was an interesting time. But I'm really glad I found those journals because I wouldn't remember half that stuff. <laughs> I know. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing your story and your heart You're with welcome. us. Thanks, Cami. You're welcome. Listeners, thanks so much for being here today. We're so glad you're here. So glad that you're checking this episode out and listening to Cami's amazing story today. I wanted to share with you all what Jeremiah 2911 says. Many of you may know it by heart, but in case you're wondering, what is that Bible verse that Cami talked about? It is a wonderful verse that might be just what you need to hear today. Jeremiah 29 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. I really loved her story of having that moment of peace with just her and Jesus in the bathroom of just, she just knew everything was going to be okay. Those moments are precious when we have those and and we can feel him close by. Um, Please remember to rate and review and subscribe. Your reviews help other listeners to find us. So we appreciate that. And we hope to see you back again in two weeks. Thanks.